This presentation was from Yorks Australia 2017, held in Sydney. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit yorksaustralia.com.au. Elle's starting off for us. Um, welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much, Donna. Um, so, I, I'm Elle. Hello. So nice to meet you. I'm a content strategist, a consultant content strategist. Uh, which means basically that I work for myself. Um, and one of my favourite all-time conferences of the year is UX Australia, so thank you so much for Donna and the crew for organising it. So what I want to do for the next 10 minutes is talk all about empathy, and it's one of those things that we talk about quite a lot at design conferences like this one. But specifically today, what I want to do is suggest what I hope is going to be a really fun strategy for raising your capacity for professional empathy. So, empathy, that old chestnut. So, can you raise your hands for me if you think empathy is really important for you to be effective in your work? Wow, so that looks like a, probably 90%. Awesome. So, can I ask you one more question? Um, and please call it out. What do you think empathy actually means? Can you define it for me? Can you shout some definitions out? What does empathy mean? Putting yourself in someone else's shoes. I love it. What else? Come on. If it's important and you need to do it, you need to know how to define it. Ah, fantastic. So actually, this response is really good because I think this kind of, there is a little bit of confusion around empathy and perhaps it's really easy to fall into the trap of thinking that it's just about emotion. Because I think empathy actually is a bit of a slippery term. It's a bit confusing because it feels like it could be a little bit about sympathy. It could be maybe even pity, especially when you're talking about that emotional um, element. It could be maybe compassion, feeling for people, or it could even be agreement. But I really love Indy Young's definition of empathy. I really, this one that really, really works well for me. Because she says it's all about understanding how other people think, uh, what's going on inside their head and heart. And it's not necessarily about emotions, but it's really about acknowledging their reasonings and, and acknowledging them as being valid. Um, the Stanford D School has a really awesome exercise on empathy for children, and they ask the kids to think about the story, The Three Little Pigs, and they say, so tell me, what do the three little pigs feel? What do they feel like? And the kids might go, oh, they're a bit scared, they're a bit worried, house is under threat. They go, okay, well done. So tell me, what does the wolf feel? And typically the kids will be like, oh, didn't really think about the wolf. And then they might think, oh, well, the wolf's super angry. And then through discussion, through this exercise, you might get the kids to the point where they can say, well, actually, the wolf is hungry. And that, I think, is a really great exercise in shifting your perspective. So if we are to discard these kind of emotional synonyms, what are we left with? I think we need an alternate. And my suggestion is that imagination is a better way of thinking about professional empathy. So our capacity to understand what it might be like to walk a mile in someone else's shoes or to think about what it might be like for other people and get out of our own heads. So 
When I think about imagination, the definition of imagination, the dictionary definition that um, says forming mental images or concepts of things not actually present to the senses. So things that you may never have experienced, things that you are not actually experiencing now. And I really think that empathy and imagination are entwined and that imagination can enhance your empathy. So we think of empathy as an emotional response and indeed, sometimes it is, but it doesn't have to be so. But, and I think that potentially imagination can be a more intellectual response, though, of course, it is still at times emotional. So what I want to do really quickly, a super, super quick exercise for us, a quick um, kind of experiment in your own imagination. So let me, let me describe a situation to you. Imagine what you're seeing here is a, is a wall, and beyond that wall is a garden. So I want you to imagine this garden for me. So it's small, it's a courtyard garden, it's filled with light. Uh, it's, say it's got like a little stunted frangipani in it. Um, when you reach out and you touch the bark, it feels rough, but it's not sharp. Um, you can hear birdies in the tree and you're really happy because you didn't scare them away. And you can hear a bit of water in the background, but you can't see where it's coming from. So. Can I ask you a question now after I talk to you about that garden, my imaginary garden, a garden you've never seen? Can anyone tell me um, what the temperature might have been like or what it smells like? Can anyone just yell out an answer? Smells fresh, lovely, cool, nice. So I have a vivid and sometimes pretty out of control imagination. I I spend a lot of time daydreaming um, and I have really crazy normal dreams as well, Um, and I blame it all on reading. I think that imagination can be built by reading. Who here reads at least a novel a month? Awesome. I really, really want to encourage the, say, 60% of you who aren't doing it to do so, because I reckon you can enhance your imagination by reading, especially novels and stories that are really far from your world experiences. I reckon that reading is the gym of the imagination, and imagination is a really great way to build your empathy muscle, and therefore it's really worth doing. So I'm just going to take advantage of the fact that I'm up here on the stage to share with you five of my all-time favorite books, because I think these are a great starting point for when you just start to thinking about I want to look at novels that are outside my normal experience, my normal worldview. Um, These stories are about um, people who are different genders, have different jobs, live in different countries, um, different worlds, have different relationship statuses, or or have different values. Um, So the first one's about living in America in abject poverty. The second one is people living on a world where you can change your gender at will. There's a whole, the fourth one, there's this fantastic scene in there about someone, imagine you could, you could, you know how to do an autopsy. So then, on top of that, imagine that you then, because of a very unfortunate situation, have to conduct an autopsy on one of your really good friends. I would love to challenge you to expand your worldview through reading novels and I guess biographies and other non-fiction, if that's your cup of tea, it isn't mine, <laughs> uh, to develop your imagination and hence your empathy. Um, books allow you, um, I think, or better still persuade you to be open to new ideas, to be more open-minded, to be more interested, 
And I think it's a really fabulous way that you can, in a quite safe and protected way, really work on those very essential and, uh, skills of empathy, skills that you all agreed are essential for you to do your job well. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from Yorks Australia 2017. For more presentations from this and other conferences, please visit yorksaustralia.com.au. Does that sound good? Awesome. Sweet. I'm uh, Nick Manthorpe. I'm the Digital Strategy Director at DMG Digital Media Group. Um, if that name sounds familiar, it's because our Digital Creative Director, Joe Purvis, was just named Digital Person of the Year at the uh, Amy, uh, Amy Awards in July. With that shameless plug done, uh, let's start our talk. Now, after crafting this uh, speech with a few team members, the topic has expanded slightly outside the original topic area, but I'm sure that you will still enjoy it. The one thing about humans, um, you know, positive or negative, for better or for worse, is that we are primarily driven by emotions. Uh, as somebody living uh, for a few years now with a fiery uh, Colombian woman, I can anecdotally at least support this hypothesis from my own personal experience. But uh, regardless of whether the task we're doing is really something that's more efficient for us or not, um, subconsciously at the very least, we are constantly just, uh, justifying our behavior through our emotions. So even if something is beautifully designed from a user experience perspective, with all of the happy paths optimized and every pain path being addressed so it can guide the user back into a happy path, the user interface um, still plays a massive role in whether we, the user, accept this as an engaging experience. So UX and UI work in tandem with each other, even though we in the industry may tend to lend more value to UX sometimes. But even if we examine you know, the best design contact form from a UX you know, structural perspective, if it's not presented nicely and doesn't align with the emotions in our mind to begin with, um, it just won't work. So it really comes down to this. You need to make sure, um, reassure, if you will, the user that they are exactly where they want to be. Uh, this can be reaffirmed a number of ways, as we know, through branding, color, layout, logo typography. Succinctness in the design always helps with this process of really helping the user identify that they're on the right path. One way to look at this is to think of UI as the boarding pass for the UX. Um, it essentially validates why you are where you are. So in this analogy, um, you're arriving at the gate at the airport because you have a planned trip ahead of you. Um, it has a certain expected outcome in the end, um, but you still need that boarding pass to get on the plane to get to where you want to be. So UI in this case acts as a conduit that both validates your choice, um, sorry, UX acts as a conduit that both validates your choice um, and also reaffirms that you are doing something correctly. So 
It's really all about helping users uh, continue on their journey as seamlessly and intuitively or subconsciously, as I like to look at it, as possible. A disjointed experience full of pain points is obviously not going to be immersive, while an enjoyable experience can be highly immersive without the user really knowing it in the moment. So while a lot of people do say that you know, UI is obviously dependent on UX, um, I still maintain that they work in tandem together. It's more of a sort of continuum. So bad UI and great UX means those emotional humans I'm talking about um, won't really be connected to, to the product, let's say. Um, so as soon as you do have a letdown in that UI, um, everything you validated through the UX process becomes basically invalid. And conversely, if you have great UI but not very good UX, um, that purpose that you've designed for tends to become muddled, um, you know, if not lost completely. So if you're not really designing with a purpose in mind, um, you know, what's, what are you designing for? So in short, um, it's really about having an even amount of focus in both UX and UI to properly encompass the core needs of the company, of the company while addressing accessibility and readability for the user um, to make the final output much stronger together than just the sum of the UX and UI parts. So if we go back to this boarding pass analogy, um, if the UX is the plane, there's a predicted path to follow to the known end destination in terms of that user's objective to reach, while the UI is something that allows the person to successfully initiate and complete the journey, um, while also acting as reassurance during the entire flight um, that they are on the right path. Now, to go one step further, um, I'd like to sort of address how this plays into customer experience. So, you know, kind of um, looking at it from a more holistic perspective than just UX in that moment. So if we look at an example, sticking to the same analogy, let's look at uh, buying a plane ticket online. Um, whether it's through an app or through a, um, you know, on a computer, um, I'm sure we'll agree that there are some great websites and apps when it comes to booking, uh, you know, travel and website, you know, hotels and flights and everything. You could have experienced the greatest UX and interface designs out there while you're making your booking. In fact, the ease of the booking process, the excitement of an upcoming trip, um, you know, could have had a really emotionally positive effect on you. Um, again, talking about emotions. But if you arrive at the airport, you know, the airline's computer systems are down, meaning they've lost access to the information, um, you know, that you opted for that fast-track check-in, you've paid for extra baggage, and now you have to join this really long queue and wonder if they're going to double-charge you for your baggage. Um, that negative situation is probably going to impact your overall customer experience with that company um, a lot more than just that one positive booking experience did previously. So to pull it back to UX and UI... Um, we can see how you know, offering express check-in or the ability to choose a seat with extra legroom is just an extension of the easy, straightforward, um, you know, user-centered online booking process, um, and that these are efforts taken by the airline to offer a more comfortable flight experience from arrival to landing. Um, but you know, more granularly, good UI can also naturally transition outside of the original experience um, a user had to another experience with that brand. So... Um, this is more sort of wayfinding, I guess. But if you are at the airport and you know that you're flying with Jetstar, um, that logo and name are what you are looking for to guide you. And if that's not properly indicated, especially if you're in a rush, um, you know that sort of poor UI decision, even if it's just not you know great screens with saying Jetstar on it, um, is again going to impact your CX. So. 
to bring it all together, um, UX, UI, and CX all affect each other um, in sometimes unpredictable ways. The important thing is to keep the user's needs aligned with the technology at hand at all times um, and look at the overall customer journey and experience, um, not just the particular path of the path, not just the particular part of the pathway um, that you may be involved in. So, a product with a visually pleasing look and feel um, and that right creative aesthetics can make or break the success of a product, no matter the investment in UX. Um, and the UI really sets up that space for creatives um, to find their beauty and artistic tastes and bring that alive, obviously, to allow your users to connect with your product and your brand on a deeper level um, and ultimately have that engaging, immersive experience that we all want our, our customers and users to have. So when the user is using a product, it's the interface that evokes the emotions, um, and that's what's going to make them feel connected and highly immersed. But of course, um, it needs to be backed up by strong UX. Thank you. Hi everyone, how are you, you going today? So my name's Greg Saxton and I work for Insurance Australia Group as a user experience designer. And I'd like to start today with a story. And I'm going to go back to December 2006 where I'm in Paris. I'm standing in the Louvre Museum and to my left a crowd gathers around to look at uh, the, the, get a glimpse of the Mona Lisa. And on my right is a huge 16th century masterpiece. It's probably the biggest painting I've ever seen in the world. And all around me are some of the most magnificent paintings that you'll ever see. And it's really surreal. So I look out front and I see something that looks a little like this. I thought, really? This is the Louvre. Put your phones away and soak it in. Come on, guys. Um, I look around um, and, uh, and over, in the, in the, uh, over in the distance, my two boys are standing there and they're pointing out the details in a painting. And I thought to myself, well, at least my wife and I are doing something right. And then I look back to the group of kids and they're now looking up and paying attention to a young woman who's asking them questions about the painting above. And eagerly they're putting up their hands, calling out, pick me, pick me. And they're sprouting off things that they just learned about the painting. And so as it turns out, she was their guide. And I had just been pretty judgmental. Um, but it did make me think of a quote from John Colkin. And he said, we shape our tools and thereafter our tools shape us. And it wasn't that the kids were disinterested in the history around them. They were being shaped by our tools, and our tools, were always, uh, and our tools are always shaping all of us. Our society has become more sophisticated because our tools have, have increased our ability to communicate, collaborate, and learn. And it's putting us in with, within reach of solving some of the world's biggest problems. Our tools now give us access to the world's information, no matter whenever we want it and wherever we are. We're all nodes connected on a global network. And we've become digitally enhanced human beings, and we didn't even really notice this happening. But it's, we're not always being shaped for the better. We get constant reminders of negative, uh, the impacts of negative antisocial behaviours on our society with things like harassment, bullying, trolling. And that's just what we've seen with the internet and mobile technologies. But we're now in a time of hyperchange, 
where an insane amount of technologies are in use and they're heading towards full-blown commercial maturity within the next couple of years. And these tools will shape us in ways that we can't even begin to imagine. We've got things like blockchain and cryptocurrencies, autonomous vehicles, chatbots and IoT, robots and AI, immersive technologies such as augmented virtual and mixed reality. And all of these tools will bring with them new challenges for us as designers to tackle. So today I want to mainly focus on some of the new challenges and opportunities that social VR will present to us as designers and make a case for why if you haven't already started to extend your expertise beyond 2D UIs, you probably really should. So a fundamental shift occurs in the perspective of our users when we design immersive experiences. Instead of observing our UIs through a viewport, which is then framed by our physical reality as a point of reference, our users are transported into the experience where they are immersed and their perspective shifts to that of an actor, where they interact uh, with the environment and, and other things around them. This is a key point. When immersed in an experience, we have a deeper connection with our surroundings, and we often feel a greater sense of understanding and emotion, whether it's empathy, fear, sorrow, joy, or elation. Our senses speak directly to our deeper subconsciousness, which makes, which makes how they shape us more intense and harder to perceive than with traditional mediums. Magic Leap and Facebook are among a number of companies that are pouring billions of dollars into moving towards the concept of all-day, everyday computing through mixed reality. And this concept is really interesting to me because what it means is that the need for physical screens and the devices that we use today, such as smartphones and watches and tablets, uh, desktop and laptop computers, TV and even movie screens, in the form of expensive physical hardware, are set to become almost obsolete. Instead, these are likely to become apps which can be purchased for a couple of bucks and they can be summoned on demand and then placed or used anywhere within our virtual or augmented lifestyles. So you might be thinking, I won't be wearing one of those big headsets all day and we already have too much screen time anyway. Well, according to Magic Leap, that's not a problem because their minimal form factor wearables that they have in development at the moment are not going to have any screens at all. Instead, our vision will be augmented with photons being beamed directly into our retinas and processed by our own visual cortex. What's more, the digital images augmented in our vision will be able to interact with our physical surroundings, which is also being mapped in real-time 3D. So this will be a big step away from our current headset technology. And it's not hard to imagine that before long, these will be in use absolutely everywhere. So often when we think of social VR, we often think of uh, games or social networking, but by 2020, it's expected to be commonplace in our work, our education, aged care, tourism, even commerce. Because these technologies allow us to be present in places where we're not physically located. Monica Bielscott says, what we need is not more technology-driven experiences, but experience-driven technology. And so it's important that we start establishing some solid design practices for immersive content as soon as possible. There are some challenges already emerging in social VR, which encroach on our users' right to feel safe and comfortable. And these are something that we now need to deal with. So I'm talking about things like the invasion of personal space and being surrounded. There's teleport stalking, disturbing sounds and heavy breathing behind your ear, like really creepy stuff, inappropriate gestures and touching. And then there's trolling. What about when people start blocking our users' view with things like banners and objects and, and, and other things when we're at virtual concerts and conferences? How do we prevent that? What about sexual and age-inappropriate behaviour? How do our users know the true age and gender of the people behind the avatars that they're interacting with? And then there's virtual criminality. What about when people commit real crimes in virtual reality? How do we design in ways that prevent and discourage that? But what about some of the positives? 
Well, well-crafted immersive experiences can have the power to further sophisticate and shape our societies in ways that they never could before. By shifting our users' perspectives, they can experience empathy on a deeper level than in any other technological medium. VR allows us as designers to close that temporal gap between cause and effect and allow our users to get a greater appreciation for the impact that their actions can have on themselves, our environment, and other beings. In a study conducted by the University of Georgia, they learned that the emotional effects of immersive experiences are long-lasting compared to any other mediums. So immersive technologies give us a platform on which we can now design content that will positively shape our society by increasing empathy for people with disabilities, bridging foreign language and literacy gaps, raising self-awareness and emotional intelligence. We can engender things like racial sensitivity and respect for the environment. Uh, we, and we can further increase people's intellect and willingness to help others. Phobias, lack of confidence and low self-esteem issues account for an unprecedented waste in human potential. And so imagine what the human race could achieve if we could design experiences which could inspire change in our users and help them conquer their fears and increase their self-confidence and sense of self-worth. So we need to start thinking differently because the role of experience design is becoming much more important and complex than it ever has before. And as you can see, the techniques that we currently use to design a more engaging and humanistic experience for the viewport have to expand and evolve. The human-computer interactions we now craft into our UIs will soon extend to human-to-human-like interactions as we place our users in spatial environments as actors interacting with avatars and characters. We'll need to address all of the subtleties of human communication, including nonverbal, as well as social etiquette and ethics. And so there's so much to learn. There's new standards to set, uh, there's new design and interaction patterns to develop. So let's make sure that we're exploring these new frontiers in design and evolving our skills in time to meet the demand so that the content is intentionally well-crafted by designers and not just developed with the best of intentions. Nancy Durate says, the future is not a place that we are going to go. It's a place that you get to create. And so let's all create it right. Thank you. I like being up here. You get to see all your faces. I think it's about time. In fact, I think it is. It's time to stand up. Up you go. Up, put your things down. That's it. Everybody up. Yeah, stretch your arms. That's it. <laughs> nice stretch. Mm. Okay. I want you to turn to someone you don't really know. <laughs> Has everybody got a buddy? Okay. Okay. Has everybody got a buddy? Has anyone got no friend? Okay. Good. We've all got a buddy. Excellent. Okay. Now the first thing you do when you have a buddy, right? 
Did you judge your buddy? Okay. So, okay. So I want you to give your buddy a nice look up and down, like they've got the most attractive brain in the entire room. Okay, so now you know your buddy has got the most attractive brain in the entire room. I want you with complete silence to look into their left eye. And I want you in complete silence, in complete silence, I want you to come up with a number in your mind of what you think your buddy earns as their income. Feel the discomfort. Okay, have you got a number in your mind? Okay, I want you to find that number. Is it higher than your own number? Is it lower? Are you judging that? Are you not sure about that number? This is something we don't normally talk about. Sorry. Uh, okay, everyone got that number? Yeah? Yeah? Okay, good. Now, on the count of five, I want you to tell your buddy that number. Ready? One, two, three. Okay, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. So who changed their number in their mind when they thought they might have to tell their buddy? What went through their head? How is their buddy going to think about them when they were going to repeat that number? Are you looking at what they might think about you and trying to figure out that at the same time? All of these conflicting emotions are going through your mind and through your body at the same time. Now, who came here with colleagues? Yeah? Okay, sit down. Those people, everyone else stay standing up. <laughs> okay, of the people standing up, if you know someone else here, sit down. Okay. So we have the Nigel No Friends left. <laughs> Excellent. This is great. This is awesome. Okay, now I know you're all a pretty open-minded bunch. You're here, after all. You're creative. You're interesting. You're interested in people's minds and how to do things and make the world better. So I'm looking for a creative, playful, open-minded person to come up here and play a little game with me. Do we have a volunteer, or do we have someone that other people would like to volunteer? Excellent. Come on up. Everyone give Nigel No Friends a round of applause. Fantastic. Aldo, hi. Hi. Welcome. Okay. Now, turn to a buddy. Aldo here. Aldo Schumann? Yes. yes. Okay. So we have a name. We've already judged him. Right? We've judged him. We've judged him based on what he looks at. Now, if you had to sing a song for karaoke for us, now I'm not going to make you sing, it's okay. <laughs> Would you choose Sweet Home Alabama, Where the Skies Are All Blue, or Taylor Swift's Shake It Off? Shake It Off. <laughs> okay, so did you guys have an idea about which one you would have chosen for him? Yeah? Was it right or was it wrong? Okay, who got it right? Who got it wrong? Who got it right? Who got it wrong? Okay, 
who got it wrong but said they got it right? <laughs> okay, that's okay. You don't have to answer that one. <laughs> okay, now we're going to build a map of our Nigel No Friends out of here. I want you to turn to a person sitting next to you and have a think about what you think he is into. What do we think? He, we know he likes Shake It Off. So we have a confirmed thing that you either got right or wrong at the last round. Now, we can take that a step further. Have a little think about his music. His music choices there. What his foods are. What his guilty pleasures are. What his favorite movie might be. Okay, I want you to talk to a friend and see if you can come up with some ideas about who this wonderful volunteer is up on stage that's willing to be judged by you all about what he is actually like. Okay, turn. One minute, go. Thank you. <laughs> this is a strange feeling. Yeah? They're all talking about you. What are you looking at and what are you seeing? What are you hearing from your buddy that you're talking to? And what are you hearing from them and what are you listening to in what's actually going on? What are you emoting when you're getting excited and saying these things, but what are you actually feeling on the inside when this is happening? There are lots of models we can use to analyze. We can run them through a whole bunch of these things. These are ones like in particular that I like to use quite regularly and I find them quite helpful. However, the models that we use and the frameworks and structures that we use, they are things that we might turn to if we were being truly present and if we were making the decision from that place. So, turn to your buddy. You don't say a thing. <laughs> Is Aldo an early bird or a night owl? Go, tell your buddy. Okay. Everybody can answer? Okay, great. Which one are you? I'm a night owl. He's a night owl. Okay. Here we go. We've got some winners in the room. Okay. If you were to be given a gift, potted plant or chocolate? Tell your buddy. Okay, everybody got an answer? What's the answer? The plant. They're definitely the plant. Ooh. Ooh. Notice your reasoning for this. Okay. Now, Aldo, don't tell us, but you might give it away in your body. Notice what you're looking for when I go through these next two options. Have a little bit of a sense of what he's doing. Don't you go looking. Uh, <laughs> would you prefer to have a snake slither over your foot unexpectedly? or a spider crawl over your hand unexpectedly. Okay, so imagine those two scenarios. Do I answer? Not yet. And now everybody else, you tell your buddy which one you think he would choose. Okay. Everybody got an answer? Made a decision? What's our winner? 
Definitely the snake. Oh, likes the snakes. Okay. Would you prefer to sit through, don't tell the answer yet, a terrible movie or an awful meal? Which one would you prefer to sit through? Have a think about your own choices in this as well and how you might be projecting them onto other people and based upon what you think Ardo is like and on your previous responses. Go, tell your buddy. They're all judging you. <laughs> okay, we got a decision. Is it terrible movie or is it awful meal? Terrible movies can be fun. Terrible movies can be fun. Okay, there we go. Anyone, uh, are you single or in a relationship? In a, ooh. Yes, you can answer. In a relationship, I was going to say if you were single, everyone else here taken to a terrible movie. Okay, last question. And we're just on time. Okay, if you were to get a tattoo based upon something from your past life experiences, if you had a hidden tattoo somewhere on your body, would it be Mickey Mouse or a banana? Don't tell. You tell me what you think. Tell your buddy. Go. Mickey Mouse or a banana? Um. Okay, okay, and what is our answer? Banana. A banana! Oh! Now, did anyone in the room get all the answers right? Oh, wow! Stand up, stand up! Stand up. These people are our prediction geniuses. Have a look, have a look. Okay. Now, how we decide how we make these decisions means to murder the alternatives. To murder the alternatives. And yet what we have to do is to keep an open mind, make the decision, keep all the data, and still step through the hoop. We have to state and to decide and to kill off other options. It may be worth looking at where that plays out in your work, in your life, and in the decisions you make for yourself. Give Aldo a round of applause, and thank you for playing.